Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast brought to you from the editorial team of the award-winning Holyrood magazine. Whether you're more interested in what politicians do to relax than what they actually do in the parliament, this is the podcast where you'll get the full skinny on politics, policy and pure nonsense. Join me, Mandy Rhodes, editor of Holyrood, along with Liam Kirkcaldy, one of my award-winning writers, along with the odd politician as we chew the political fat and spit it out onto the page of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood magazine. Yeah, it's probably quite good for Labour that there is no Edinburgh Fringe this year. Yeah, I know, they're kind of propping it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so if Angela Rayner signed off on that, that would mean that it's the first time anyone's had to sack their own flatmate. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Liam, it's not as if I would allow you to tell me that Stuart Stevenson had stolen a peacock, for instance, without checking the veracity of that. Did you, did you check that, Mandy, when I wrote it? Because actually, in, in fairness, I only allege that he stole a peacock. Shaming, for want of a better word, about people that are breaching social distancing and things like that. As healthy societies don't engage in, in public shaming. Okay, so first up this week, we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's a part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Mandy, I've really only got one big bad week this week. I think it's a particularly bad week. Yeah, you mean for Rebecca Long-Bailey? I do, yes. So it's it's been a bad week for uh, Labour's Rebecca Long-Bailey after she was uh, demoted from the front bench, or sacked from the front bench, by Sir Keir Starmer um, after he said she had shared an article containing an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. I mean, I think, to be fair, she was probably sacked because she refused to take down her retweet of that um, interview with Maxine Peake, the actress, who's also a big fan of Jeremy Corbyn, I think a friend of Rebecca Long-Bailey's. She's done an interview with The Independent and within that had basically referred to her belief that Israeli secret services had given training to American police in terms of the George Floyd um, deaths and had taught them how to kill people basically by putting their knees on their necks. Yeah, there, there's a lot to kind of unpick around that story. Yeah. I think, um, so the issue for me is, one, I think far too many politicians like or retweet articles without properly reading them. I mean, think- we've had that problem within Holyrood. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure it's uh, an offence that you should be sacked for. But um, Rebecca Long-Bailey did retweet the interview and she did say that Maxine Peake was a diamond. Um, Mm. She then has since said that she wasn't endorsing everything within the article. Um, The Independent has now changed online the article, I think, three times. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, for me, there's also an issue of shouldn't an editor have also read that piece and thought, I'm not sure that's true. And given the sensitivities around these things, perhaps checked it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Liam, it's not as if I would allow you to tell me that Stuart Stevenson had stolen a peacock, for instance, without checking the veracity of that. Did you, did you check that, Mandy, when I wrote it? Because actually, in, in fairness, I only allege that he stole a peacock. <laughs> I, don't... I guess to me it felt so utterly plausible that I didn't feel the need to check. It is, in many ways, it's the natural uh, conclusion to Scottish politics, actually. <laughs> yeah, but in fairness to Stuart Stevenson, for anyone who doesn't understand what we're talking about just now, a, a, a peacock has started hanging around Stuart Stevenson's house. Um, he doesn't own the peacock. He doesn't know who does own the peacock. And he feels now that he is responsible for this peacock's welfare. 
and he's concerned that he's going to be accused of stealing it. I don't know how how entirely connected it is to the Rebecca Long Bailey story, but you would have, of course, fact-checked it, didn't you? Yeah, we'll also see what politicians actually like or retweet your column about Stuart Stevenson and then the punishment that they get for that. Well, you should see the DMs, Mandy. You should see the DMs. <laughs> and I'm going back to the more serious point about Rebecca Long Bailey. Clearly, Keir Starmer, as the new leader, feels that he needs to come down extremely strongly on mm -hmm. anything that smacks of anti-Semitism. I think um, there will be elements of the party on the moderate side that think this was a really good move. He's clearly upset those um, to the, the left. Um, and I think there are still lots of question marks um, but I think, do you not feel that she she was just inept in a way for doing what she did? Yeah, I, mean, I, I think the way I look at it is there's kind of, the way that these things are reported, it sounds like she's been sacked in some way. I mean, she's effectively been demoted from a very high profile job, but she is obviously, no, one's, no one is entitled to a front bench position naturally. And the argument I would imagine is just that she isn't particularly effective as far as Keir Starmer sees it. You know, and, and he's got a big problem on his hands. Yeah interesting given that she obviously stood against him for leader mm -hmm. but also i wonder what the um discussions at home are like because she shares a flat in london oh, with right. angela rayner who is the deputy leader of the party yeah so if, if angela rayner signed off on that that would mean that it's the first time anyone's had to sack their own flatmate um, mm. which is probably pretty awkward really especially if they're having to do lockdown together <laughs> you yeah. can only imagine what the dinner chat's like it makes breakfast awkward doesn't it it does yeah <laughs> um, and, yeah I, mean, I suppose this as far as keir starmer's concerned he probably has bigger problems to deal with at the moment anyway well i think one of his big problems which remains a big problem for labor anyway is scotland mm -hmm. and um he's said in various virtual meetings with Scottish journalists that he certainly won't be backing a second referendum. thought it was unfortunate, again, that he had his um, so-called virtual huddle with journalists in Scotland at the same time as the First Minister was doing her briefing. Yeah, that's not, that's not the first time that's happened, is it? No, yeah. it's almost as if it's meant. Yeah, I just, I don't know how many people, I mean, I suppose most media organisations have capacity to cover both. But yeah, it's, I, I, there was a review recently that found that... Um, unsurprisingly, that Labour's views on Scottish independence were increasingly problematic and winning over voters. I'm not exactly sure what the right answer for them is, but more indecision clearly isn't the answer. Mm. Um, it was obviously just it was just last summer that you had that confusion between John McDonnell coming up to the fringe and announcing one plan and Richard Leonard contradicting him within hours. And then apparently spoke to him on the phone and told him, please stop doing this. John McDonnell went out and did it exactly the same again. Yeah, it's probably quite good for Labour that there is no Edinburgh fringe this year. Yeah, I know. They're kind of propping it up. Yeah. <laughs> so what about a bad week? Well, good week, sorry. Sorry, good no, week. that was, that yeah, was actually that was, that was. That was a bad week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the, the good week here is, is quite a wide-ranging one. I've just I've, I've got written here, good week for parents. Um, yeah. And that, that comes after John Swinney performed what uh, may or may not be a U-turn on his position on schools reopening. Um, so the plan now, following a statement to Parliament, is that schools are aiming to reopen full-time with no physical distancing in August if coronavirus continues to be suppressed. And that's obviously quite a big if. Um, I mean, Mandy, what do you think? Was that a U-turn? What, what, what was going on? Well, it was quite evidently a U-turn uh, in terms of, you know, media and opposition politicians will obviously see that. He changed his mind very, very quickly. Um, I mean, I suppose uh, for me, the good week uh, was for parent power. Mm -hmm. I mean, very quickly parents reacted. So having, and I think what 
is at the root of all of this is we've been an incredibly compliant nation. We've done what we've been told to do. Um, we've seen things start to open up. Um, parents have clearly had very difficult time, as have teachers, as have children, um, trying to cope for three months with, without any schooling. I mean, that's not entirely true. I mean, obviously, there's been online schooling, but things have not gone well for, for a lot of children. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody believed that the right thing to do would be to say, we will plan for schools returning in August full time as much as possible, as long as it's risk, as much as it can be risk free. Yeah. And instead of that being the plan, they almost announced the contingency plan first. Yeah. In a way, it's almost as if the plan B has become the plan A and the plan A has become the plan B. And they, they yeah. both obviously were always couched in this language that it depends on what actually happens over the course of the summer and that we don't really know that much about the spread of coronavirus. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of it, why, um, if we were talking about it being a bad week for John Swinney and a good week for parent power, I just felt John Swinney is the most experienced parliamentarian at Holyrood. You know, he's been mm -hmm. an MP as well as an MSP since the very beginning and has been Deputy First Minister forever and, and held the economy brief, the finance brief, now Education Secretary. And I feel for him that things like name person, the education bill, and now this, the messaging has all been wrong around it. And it has made him look as if he's the one that's on the back foot and then had to do a U-turn. Um, I mean, I don't believe for one minute that John Swinney would want children not to be educated, nor would he want them to be put at risk to a virus. But this is where we're at in this problem. Mm -hmm. There is no risk-free alternative. Yeah, it's a matter of balancing risk in that sense, isn't it? I mean, John Swinney's got a reputation as a safe pair of hands. That's what basically people always say. You know, he's, yeah. that's why Nicola Sturgeon moved him into education originally was that this was meant to be a key part of her portfolio and she wanted someone in the in the post that she knew would be able to deliver on the reforms that she had imagined. And it's it's not been an easy time for him. No, and actually it was almost, you know, 24 hours after John Swinney had said on television on a Sunday politics programme that uh, it was very unlikely that schools would return to full time for perhaps a year and that mm. the exam timetable would be delayed considerably. It was 24 hours later, Nicola Sturgeon was basically contradicting that. Mm -hmm. um, so you've got to feel for him in a way as well. But I think, um, think it's right that was a political statement, but then they are politicians. So... I mean, that kind of led me on to, I suppose, my column, which is what, again, you know, I've written about the column around this. But in a way, this is the last column of, mm. before recess, so we have a bit of a break. Um, and I was really struck the other day as I cycled into the office. I cycled past three primary schools, and I stopped to read some of the little notes that have been tied on the railings. And they were just really sad. You know, it was mm. kids saying that they missed their teachers. And you... It really struck me how much we're losing by children not being in a classroom. Um, and we don't know what's happening necessarily for them at home. Mm. I mean, I've talked a little bit about how I've, I've enjoyed seeing the children in our streets suddenly coming out and playing in a way that they never used to. But, you know, there will be lots of children, who vulnerable children, who have had a really hard time during this lockdown. I'm sure all of that is going through ministers' minds. Mm. You know, they want to keep people safe. They understand the long-term damage of lockdown. None of this is easy. These are hellish decisions. 
Yeah, there's a real tension, isn't there? You've on the one hand, you've got this. Well, there's already evidence that the attainment gap, things like that, are are going to increase when these children are out of out of school. You've got children who will be at potentially at risk in their yeah. own homes, and also you've got the fact that they just need to be educated. The same tensions exist with the economy too, don't they? I mean, you, you can see that in England, where they've obviously gone a little bit further in the idea that there's going to be a risk if we open up these businesses if we open up restaurants if we open up bars if we allow people to start going back to normality but on the other hand there's a risk to not doing that too jobs will be lost child poverty will be will, will increase i mean that kills too yeah and i suppose that's in some ways you're seeing the difference between nicola sturgeon and boris johnson in a way where i think she probably is a bit more risk averse yeah well you know i i have no doubt that if she could, she would keep us all under house arrest, if you like, just to keep us safe. Wow, that is an allegation, Mandy. Yeah, Liam, for all the best intentions, she wants to keep people safe. I mean, yeah. do you know, who would want the responsibility of this on their shoulders? And I think you're constantly having to remind yourself that they're human. Mm. And, um, you know, I interviewed Nicola Sturgeon for this magazine because we've done a really, it's been a really great spread in the magazine of 50 women at 50. Mm -hmm. I wanted us to celebrate 50 years since the first meeting of the Women's Liberation Movement and also 50 years of the passage of the Equal Pay Act and kind of look at what's happened in those 50 years and where are women at. So what we did was we we went and found 50 women, mm -hmm. uh, 51, including the First Minister. She's 50, 19th of July. I think that's a, a notable that date is. for you. The 19th of July is indeed both me and Nicola Sturgeon's birthday. So keep that in mind if you're deciding which party to go to. Um, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch as well. I've looked it up. Uh, David Lammy, also his birthday. If they are celebrating this together, right, Liam, I should It's not add, all about you. I mean, well, if, they are, if they're having a party, they're not inviting me. So that's all I would say is I've never once been invited. God, if only you were a woman and would have interviewed that's you right. for 50 I mean, women at 50. It's probably also worth adding that the women did agree to take part in the magazine. We didn't just catch them. Uh, <laughs> I think, um, you know, in, we've done little snapshot interviews. So it's a, it's a snapshot, a kind of patchwork quilt of all these women talking about how they feel at 50. And I think there were three, there were sort of main themes for me, um, marathons, Munros and menopause. <laughs> uh, and all the women kind of talk about, there's an overriding feeling of they all feel much more confident that your 30s was a nice time, you, you stopped feeling so insecure about how you looked or how you portrayed how you were portrayed to others and then 40s were exciting people entered their 50s in trepidation i think a lot of people said they were dreading their f getting to 50 mm. um but they all seem it, it seems quite a joyous time yeah in general i mean I I, one of the questions i included in most of the interviews was how their uh, younger self would view them if they could see them now um and fortunately none of them said that they would be utterly disgusted with how their life had turned out that it had all gone wrong that their 18 year old self would be you know spinning at them uh, i thought one of the th things that i thought was funny coming out of it was this a kind of recurring theme that 50 is much younger than it used to be um almost everyone i spoke to said basically that when they were looking at their own mother for example um, they'd be thinking, oh, that that is old at 50, you know, like an old lady sitting in a shawl or something. And they're out, as you say, doing marathons or, or whatever. And I, I think if we ever did this again, my one suggestion would be that we actually allow a little spot for the mother, if possible, to respond. Um, because, I mean, one of my favorite one actually was a woman who said, I won't name them, you can pick up the magazine and read it. But um, 
she said that when she when her mum was 50 she was you know she saw an old lady sitting there she'd be sitting doing her knitting and things like that and she's totally different now i mean yeah yeah okay she, she does knit yeah sure and her children do say that she's old for knitting but it's just totally different when she does it uh, which i thought was quite funny in a lot of ways well i don't i what i found interesting with uh, the pieces and some of the women that i spoke to was that um I'm old enough to remember when the phrase mutton dressed as lamb was used about women <laughs> in, you know, who were perhaps in their mid, mid-life uh, time and they might dress younger. And actually, that's a phrase you don't hear anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe because we're all locked up, no one's seeing each other. True, yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think women now do perhaps, maybe that's because I'm of a certain age, but I think we, we don't dressed to conform to a certain age, mm. which perhaps I would actually say with most of the women, they were, and Nicola Sturgeon certainly talked about this, it was her granny rather than her mum that she remembers being mm. much older as a 50-year-old. And I suppose it depends what age your mother was when she had you, you know, and how you viewed them. But I just think we, we have interviewed such a cross-section and they are all so very different, mm-hmm. but there are such common themes, which is really interesting. And even even with Nicola Sturgeon, actually, she was willing to say that she still didn't feel that she'd done enough. That was another that a lot of people said, you know, in their mind that they're not they're not 50 in their minds. Yeah. That there's other things that they would like to do. Yeah. Um, I know, obviously, you're thinking of the fact that there's constant speculation that she's going to go on to a different job. I think you talked about her about that. <laughs> well, I think she's aware that there's constant speculation I mean, about her job. <laughs> largely by us, it should be said. I mean, I'm, I'm reported on rumours that we actually spread. Yeah. So. <laughs> and to be fair, she she was very funny about that. And, and she was saying, well, speculation exists because you speculate <laughs> and we all know that the fact that in the interview she then does talk about the fact that if she ever stops being first minister she will still be young enough to go on and do new things which mm-hmm. i'm sure will spark headlines from everybody speculating yeah. about her future uh, i think the, th- the thing about the interview with um, nicola sturgeon was that clearly i mean i interviewed her back in october and she expressed then that she was dreading getting to 50, mm-hmm. that the whole idea of ageing really bothered her um, and that she wanted to just forget the whole thing. And in fact, she said that it's actually her 10th wedding anniversary, a couple of days before her birthday in July. And she said that she got married when she was almost 40 to completely distract from the fact that she was about to be 40. Mm-hmm. Um, but so so the, the idea of ageing has worried her and what's happened in the last few months in dealing with COVID has completely changed her perspective about mm. that. Um, so I, I think, like many people, they're reassessing things and thinking about their life and what they've done. And she said that this is clearly the most um, incredible thing that she's ever had to deal with. And it's been obviously wearing and testing. Mm. And then another one of the women who took part in it was Angela Constance. The Angela MSP. Constance. Uh, yeah. I mean, another kind of funny thing about that, Nic- Nicola Sturgeon said to me, oh, who else uh, is in this? And I kind of mentioned a few names. <laughs> she'll probably know them. <laughs> she, she knew a few of them. And I said to her, uh, oh, and of course, Angela Constance, who um, is an SMP MSP, was in the cabinet with uh, Nicola, et cetera. And... Um, <laughs> the first minister was very quick to say, "Oh, of course, Angela's much older than me. I think it's, I think it's about three or four days, actually." Um, so Angela came in and did an interview with us to talk a little bit more about how she felt about reaching that age and and as a marathon runner. So we're mm. about to hear that interview. Excellent. 
So, Angela Constance, um, you're part of our 50 Women at 50. You'll be pleased to know that I interviewed the First Minister as well for this, and she made a real point of saying that you're, what, four days older than her? Something yes, like that? Yes, uh, Nicola often makes that remark that I'm four days older than her, and that's absolutely true, but I often point out to her that I'm much fitter than her. Oh, <laughs> and on that note, you, you've got a particular thing that you're doing for your 50th year, haven't you? I am. So my plans have changed a bit because of lockdown, but my plan for this calendar year was to do five marathons and one ultra marathon, uh, one run for each decade. Um, but um, two of the marathons are postponed till next year, which means fingers crossed all going well the first race that i will run <laughs> is a 47 mile ultra marathon uh, around the lake district where it's quite hilly and off-road and uh, against my better judgment my wee sister persuaded me to enter that so i've had to get a bit of um bit of uh, professional advice on how to train because i'm not an athlete um, I've done many marathons before, but I'm usually at the back with, um, how can I put it, um, some runners that are perhaps older or they're recovering from conditions. There's usually a man, um, you know, with a fridge on his back that usually beats me or somebody dressed as a womble, you know. Um, but this is, this is different, so I got a bit of advice from Wally Rennie who put me in touch with um, a really helpful woman who's helped me draw up a training plan for someone of my ability. <laughs> it's really interesting because all the women, and we've interviewed 50, 51 plus, uh, including the First Minister, and I would say the themes have been um, marathons, Munros and menopause. Well, um, marathons, yes. Um, I'm definitely hoping to do some uh, hill climbing in preparation for the ultramarathon over the summer. And in terms of the menopause, uh, while I think it's absolutely fantastic that women uh, are now feeling more confident to speak about uh, the menopause, and I'm supportive of that, but I hope you'll respect my right. I have no intentions of talking to you about my menopause. <laughs> oh, sure, we'll get there. <laughs> It's quite interesting that I think women at 50 now, I mean, that comes from all the pieces, very well aware of their, their fitness. And mm. many people say they feel fitter now than they did when they were in the 30s and 40s. No, I, 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 absolutely. Um, I was, uh, as a teenager, um, started high school, was, was, was pretty interesting sport, did uh, swimming, did volleyball, did all sorts of... Um, things, you know, after school activities and then got to about 14 and um, since I've been 13 or 14 I'm kind of the, the, the height and size I am now, which is well, I've got used to it now, you know I'm not bothered about the size of my bahuki because at the end of the day I don't have to look at it um, but when you're 13 or 14 I, you know, might look fairly normal size now but would have appeared pretty big so I really didn't like wearing shorts, showing my legs, you know, all, all of this sort of stuff. So, um, you know, just used to play truant from PE at school. And didn't you just um, pretend to have a period all the time? Uh, oh, I, I've, yeah, I've done that. <laughs> I've done that as an adult, actually. <laughs> but we won't talk about your menopause. <laughs> um, so, um, and I got into running 
in my 30s. And then I had my son in my late 30s. And, you know, my son was born the same year that I was elected to the Scottish Parliament. So that was quite a year. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of have dipped in and out of it since then. But I think the thing about turning 50 is, um, I think while you are much less bothered about appearance, doesn't mean you don't care about how you look. I think you're prepared to And be you look bolder. amazing. Prepared <laughs> to be bolder, because actually you've stopped caring what other people think. And your appearance is much more health related. Um, so yeah, so in, in terms of you know many of my contemporaries, I think we're much more conscious uh, of, of our own health. And I also think about you know my own mum, who, um, because of the nature of the work that she uh, did, you know she's had a lot more health-related issues, probably in, in relation to you know the heavy burden of caring work. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, uh, I'm really fortunate. Do you think um, reaching your 50s, I mean, I take absolutely what you say about you, you get to your 30s, and a common theme was women talking about your 30s were a really great period. You kind of came out of that very self-conscious 20s. You felt more confident about yourself. 40, similar, kind of a bit of a milestone. Did you feel sad about you get to 50? No, not, not sad. I suppose I expected it to be more traumatic on approach than, than it has been. Um, that there is, you know, I, I find 30 perhaps more of a milestone because it really was well and truly, you were well into adulthood. Um, and when I turned 40, um, you know, my son, after many years of trying, you know, I had a, a wee boy at three, you know, it was a you know, good time in life. And I think for me turning 50, um, while I just don't give a, how can I put it, a, a castleman's 4X really about what anybody thinks um, about me either, you know, personally or how I look. Um, and you grow into yourself as you get older and you have that grown confidence. There is also um, a, a growing awareness of your own morbidity. So, you know, I'm fortunate I, I still have my mother um, although she's in her late 60s with various health problems. But my dad died in his mid-50s, not to do with ill health, but to do with a road traffic accident. So, uh, and being um, what my mother would call, would describe me as an older mother, because she had her children young, I'm pretty conscious that um, after I turn 50, my son will be 13, so he'll only be 23 by the time I'm... 60, he'll be 33 by the time I'm 70, mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, you have that awareness about, you know, wanting to ensure everything's in place, worst case scenario. And also that time isn't limitless. You've got to make the most of the time you have. So, you know, there's no, there's, there's no, no room for messing about anymore. You know, there's a bit about living life for the moment um, and being a bit more forthright. I think the other thing is, um, so I'm now 57 and I still look around for the adult in the room to make a decision. That's something I brought up with the First Minister. Does she still do that? And she said, you know, at times like this she can't, but yes, you know, you still do kind of want to be looked after or think, am I the responsible one? Do you get that? No, <laughs> actually I don't. Yeah. Um, you I are the adult in the room then. 
I. Uh, I mean, I would say, you know, that my husband's also an adult. Um, no, no, I don't get that. Um, and I think for me, prob I'm, I'm the eldest mm. of five. Um, there's a lot of change in my background as a child growing up. So I, I kind of, I'm fairly re resilient in terms of coping with change and coping with change at, at, at short notice. Um, and no. So how have you dealt with the lockdown then? Just, I mean, I take that point that you're saying you've reached 50 and you start to think, I might have had half my life, probably. And you do start to think about your mortality. I think during this time, people have even thought about that even more. Yeah, yeah no, I, 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 absolutely. And I think, um, I think for me personally, so, you know, I have a really privileged position, I have a privileged job, um, I, you know, haven't had the financial worries that many of my constituents uh, or indeed other family members have, have had. Um, and I have a spacious house um, with a decent garden. Um, but I nonetheless had a bit of what I would describe as kind of low-level general anxiety uh, in the start. And I think that was quite, quite, quite normal. Um, so I worried, um, if I'm honest, about... So I have asthma, mm -hmm. uh, you know, but I'm, I'm very healthy, well-controlled asthmatic, and, and I worried about that which then takes you into the territory of, um, you know, what happens if, you know, you go to hospital. I was quite freaked out when I understood what being attached to a ventilator means. Um, so there are lots of things that you, th you, you thought about that you hadn't really had cause to think about before. And, you know, so in my house, there's me, my husband and my son. And, you know, I'm saying to him, you know, he, you know and I'm saying to my husband, what happens if we both get ill? And okay, one of us can be isolating in that room. Um, and but what happens if you know we're both ill? And you know we're going to have to you know uh, get our son to brush up these kind of you know I say cooking skills. You know, um, making a cup of soup or a pot noodle or you, you know. And, and my husband had said to me, what you mean? What's going to happen if? we both go to hospital at the same time. And I just had to say to him, stop right there. Mm -hmm. I can't even think about that, just stop it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want that thought in my head. So, and, and I think like many people, you had that sense, heightened sense of your own mortality. And then, you know, you, you adjust, mm -hmm. I think fresh air and exercise, if you're able to do it in this regard is really, um, important yeah. actually. Well you're Dominic Cummings and you just jump in a car and go to a beauty spot. Oh, was that not mad? Yeah. I'm just <laughs> madness. Madness. And and during this time, I mean being a politician, how do you feel people have responded to politicians telling them what to do apart from anything else? So I mean by large um, people have been really uh, positive um, so in terms of my own constituency, and other MSPs will speak about this as well, you've seen great resilience. Um, many local organisations, small organisations, organisations that are quite hand-knitted, um, but grassroots organisations just have done amazing things. You know, I know of one woman, Pumperson, that's made like a thousand bowls of soup, um, that have done amazing things to ensure folk are fed. 
uh, particularly in terms of the, the, the shielding group. So there's a real community resilience and can-do attitude that will never be able to put that, can you put the genie back in a bottle? And you wouldn't want to. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think communities will have different expectations about what they can and should be doing to determine their own fate at a very uh, local level. There are, of course, been constituents that have been you know, quite anxious. Um, many have been very, um, you, know, you know, they'll say, you know, dear Angela, so sorry to bother you, it's a very busy time um, because casework is just rocketed. It's never, I've been an MSP for 13 years and I've, you know, and I used to work in the social work department. I've never had seen caseloads like this. So, you know, me and my, you know, small constituency team, um, like everybody else, have had a, a, a lot uh, of work and a lot of inquiries. And people, I think, are largely very cognizant of that. And it's trying to, so people will go and read, you know, the national guidance, but they're always looking for quite bespoke information about about their life or, or their circumstance so there's quite a bit of you know help people to, to, to work things uh, out um, and there are of course and I think the longer that things have progressed you do get folk understandably they're just angry yeah. you know um, you know and, and we'll phone you know phone, phone our uh, phone line uh, just to express their anger and you know again I'm a former social worker I'm able to cope with a whole range of emotions that people express. I mean, in terms of popular careers, you could have gone from <laughs> social work to politician. I mean, the next step would be, what, a state agent? Well, I mean, now that you mention that, <laughs> I've never been an estate agent, but um, I, I, I left school at the start of sixth year and actually worked in the bank for a wee while. Um, and then decided that banking wasn't for me, went to university and then worked in the finance sector, um, actually selling finance in the days of... Not PPE. No, no, no. Um, but no not PPE. PPI. Not PPI. <laughs> loans, actually. Yeah, uh -huh. I worked in a call centre in Edinburgh um, as a young graduate, flogging loans over the phone. Um, and then went into... So, so I went from finance um, to social work to politics. <laughs> And when you think about 50, do you, did you have any idea in your head of, I mean, I, my view is um, my mother or perhaps my granny at 50 was a very different being to a 50-year-old now. I, I think in general terms, uh, I, I would have had that perception that um, in years gone by, being 50 was seen as being older than it is now. Um, in terms of my own granny and my own mother, um, my granny was only 39 when I was born. So, you know, my, my granny never appeared that old. And it's just passed away at the start of lockdown, actually. Um, um, but she was always, you know, um, baby blonde at 103. <laughs> she would never go grey. Um, and, you know, liked her jewellery, liked her bling, shoes, handbags, preferably matching. Um, and, and was just generally quite fun-loving. Mm. You know, lived for her Saturday night out in the Masonic Hall. Uh, and my mum, of course, had her children young. So at 50, you know, she had... When my mum was 50, I was 32. You know, my sister was 30, my brother was 28, you, you know. Um, so she had grown up children, um, was still 
working, mm-hmm. you know. So they didn't appear particularly old, but maybe I had a view about women in general at that age that I didn't have for, for my own relatives. I suppose it's like, you know, so phrases you don't hear anymore are mutton dressed as lamb, for instance. <laughs> I mean, however sexist that is. But I mean, those are phrases that, as I was growing up, you'd hear people talk about women, probably about 50, and that's not the case now. No, no. Um, I don't think that is the case. Um, although people will still have views about women and their attire. I mean, you know, you'll have to dip into social media. I remember being um, interviewed maybe about three or four years ago in a, a kind of TV news night type programme and thinking I had quite a city green blouse on. And, you know, somebody on social media was like, what the F are you wearing for you? It's <laughs> just like, I'm thinking, you know, what are you on? You know, type, type thing. And it's interesting, and I had this discussion with my own sister recently, we, we, we think we are bringing up our own children to be much more um, aware of, you know, gender issues and, you know, we think our, our, we're rearing our, our sons um, to be um, much more conscious of the gender divide. And I'll, you know, quite often say to my son, well, you wouldn't say that, and he'd be like, absolutely not. Or, or you know, he, he'll repeat something that somebody said at school and I'll question it. And, and I've always taken some comfort that he, you know, doesn't jump in the bandwagon. Although, I have to tell you, the reason I'm sitting with a scarf on is I kind of lost patience. I jumped the gun, found out today hairdressers are opening on the 15th of July, my birthday. So I've jumped the gun, I've got fed up, take the clippers to my hair. And, you know, it's only hair, you know, it'll grow. Um, but my son was horrified, absolutely horrified. He is just like, why did you do that? You know, and has some views about how it looks. It's not a gal thing. It's not a girl thing. Yeah. Whereas my sister's like, oh yeah, that's grand, that's that's very rock and roll. My son is a bit like, I don't want my mum and rock and roll, you know. Yeah. Um, and, and I just thought that was really interesting. It is funny, isn't it? Mine's like that as well. And I suppose, you know, what's the best thing about getting to 50? Freedom. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's that sense of freedom that, that comes when, when you get older. Um, and I suppose it's that, you know, I suppose the danger is that, that I turn into my granny because um, as she got older... She sounds great, though. She, she got, I suppose, a little bit more disinhibited <laughs> and, um, yeah, would come out with some shockeroonies, mm-hmm. um, which I won't repeat for the purpose of this podcast because <laughs> my mother will never forgive me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, I, I mean, I hope that in that sense of freedom and uh, kind of personal resilience and being more comfortable in your own skin that uh, I'm not um, completely um, tone deaf you know to how that's received and you know the the, the impact on on other people. Good and what have you got planned anything particular? Actually I have no plans to be honest just because of what's happened with lockdown. My sister and I um, were going to have an early birthday celebration over Easter. We were going to Jordan mm-hmm. on a touring holiday. I, I'm very interested in the Middle East. I read a lot about uh, politics in the Middle East. Uh, I read a lot about uh, ancient history of the Near East. Uh, I'm learning Arabic. 
Uh, and it's uh, a region of the world that the more I read, I feel the less I understand. Um, so I don't profess to be uh, any expert by any stretch of the um, imagination. And I've been to Beirut before, um, I've been to Bethlehem before, um, and I've been to uh, Egypt as well. And, you know, some of the places that I wanted to visit, I've got a particular interest in Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you can't, you know, before the lockdown, you couldn't buy a holiday or a trip to, to, to Tehran for insurance purposes. Um, and Jerusalem and Beirut were kind of heating up politically again, so I'd opted to go to Jordan. Mm. I wanted to see the Wadi Rum um, and various other sites. It was uh, quite a, actually quite a physical uh, tour and holiday, but so that's that's kiboshed, um, unfortunately. So I have no plans, but um, you can always defer. Well, yeah, defer the fiftieth. It'll just be, it'll be a long, a long 50th year. Of course, it was your sister that told me that it was your 50th as well. Oh, that's right, so it was. <laughs> <laughs> so you can get her for that. No, it's my sister-in-law, that's ah, right. Yeah, right. That's right, yeah, yeah, that's right, so it was, so it was. Thanks for that, Angela, and happy birthday. Thank you very much, Mandy, it's been great fun. Good. Okay, and this is the part of the show where Mandy usually goes off on some sort of uh, rant of, of some kind. Anyway, Mandy, you, I mean, this, the, the point of this is that you're meant to be like a, a guy who accosts you in a pub and starts telling you about all the wrong things about society. I mean, have you got something like that for us? I know, but increasingly I feel like I'm just the old woman in the corner in the pub just <laughs> muttering away about the things that are annoying me about young people and uh, etiquette and manners. Would you, and- would you say things were better in your day? <laughs> When I was mutton dressed as lamb. (laughs) When old women were old women. so actually, because I, I, I know we've we've been talking about this anyway. I think this is something that's bothered us both. But litter, and as restrictions have lifted and people have been more out and about, um, we are seeing more litter. And I suppose it annoys me. It's always annoyed me. I'm part of the generation that was um, told that you must never drop litter, and I certainly don't. Um, But what we're seeing are lots of young people mainly gathering in the meadows in Edinburgh, Kelvin Grove in Glasgow. Um, They're drinking. You know, I mean, I feel for them. They've been locked up. It's horrendous. Um, But I can't forgive them for the litter that they're leaving. And Ian Rankin, the novelist who lives... um, over from the meadows had tweeted this week a picture of the mess that was left in the meadows, mm. which was horrendous. And I think the thing that upset me more than anything was that there were just loads and loads of empty orange carrier bags as well. So clearly they'd all brought their drink from the local supermarket, they'd all drunk, they'd all eaten, and then they'd all left everything lying there. Why not just shove it in the carrier bag and take it away? No, I know, I know. I actually, this, I actually think this one's spot on for once, Mandy. Normally, I uh, <laughs> normally I question your rants, to be honest, or at least <laughs> privately. But no, uh, I, I mean, I really sympathise with people that are stuck indoors, and I think a lot of the kind of online shaming, for want of a better word, about people that are breaching social distancing and things like that is far off. You know, it's not healthy societies don't engage in 
in public shaming in general um but there's i mean if you go to the park you could just take your litter away with you yeah. you know there's no there's no actual explanation for that beyond pure selfishness um and you know the uh, uh, I actually think it's fairly isolated incidents in a lot of cases, but that picture of the meadows was outrageous. Yeah. It was absolutely ridiculous. I think the other thing, because so it led on to other things, and then there was a picture tweeted this morning of um, the litter shaped into, it was like, it's so Edinburgh, isn't it? An art installation, yeah. uh, but, but spelling out, if you can spell out numbers, 2482. Um, and there was a lot of speculation about what 2482 meant. What I, mean, I took um, immediately was that they were saying people shouldn't be gathering in large numbers with no social distancing when we're involved in a pandemic. And 2482 referred to the, the official Scottish government number for people that have died who had already been diagnosed with COVID. So it's yeah. not the true number even. It's a slightly lower figure, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think we're talking about 4,000 or mm -hmm. something, but yeah. Yeah, um, I, yeah, I think it is very much a it's a posh Edinburgh reaction to a to a problem. You know, you can if it wasn't in well on the edge of Morningside or wherever, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. But... Protest through the art of dance or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not yeah. what Leith would do. <laughs> yeah. uh, but no, I mean, it actually, it made me uncomfortable to be honest. I I thought it was a bit crass the message um, to represent people's lives and deaths using litter. Uh, I don't think probably the point of it was to affect change rather than to raise awareness of a problem. Um, but I think the stage that you're using bits of old bottles and crisp packets and cans to shape the number of people that have died of, you know, the, the worst crisis of the last 70 years. And then you've got your drone set up so you can fly it above uh, so that you you and your, your fellow volunteers can film it. I mean, you know, I've done quite a few beach cleans in the past and that's not what happens. You, mm. you clean up the rubbish, you put it in a bin or you recycle what you can. And then you leave, you know, you don't make some grand point about the people that you're, as I say, I think really trying to publicly shame. And there's no justification for leaving all that stuff behind. But I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I don't think they got it right. Well, I'd be interested to know if, in fact, the people that did the art installation then picked up the rubbish. But, yeah, um, well, I'm sure they did. I'm, yeah. I mean, also, in fairness to them, I don't know if they're calling it an art installation or if I'm just no, doing it in me. a horrible way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I don't know. I'd be interested to see if Glasgow responds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and just before we kind of leave that, um, I think the other issue for me is there is a lot of drinking going on. It is all outside. In mm. Glasgow in particular, you're not allowed to drink outside. That You know, there's a bylaw about it. and I, I think it's a bit misjudged of some ex-Labour politician that is saying perhaps Glasgow should, you know, revisit that and people should be allowed to drink. I mean, we've, we're in the middle of a public health crisis. We also, before this, had quite a big public health crisis about our relationship with drink. I'm not sure the reaction should be to then think, well, let's all get back to drinking again. I suppose... Do you think there's a danger that if they don't loosen things a bit, if they do, you know, take quite a strict response to maintain people's health, there could be a backlash, I suppose. You know, there was always a belief in the UK government, apparently, that they just didn't think the UK would accept lockdown at all. And if you see what's happening in other parts of Europe and parts of the UK as well, people do seem to be tiring of it a bit. So I suppose there's maybe a practical argument that if you don't cut people some slack, then they'll actually react even worse. But that doesn't justify, obviously. No, but maybe a politician could do something about that, Liam. So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. 
If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.